So, our Father, we've been mindful today that uh, it's 9-11 today in 2019. And we have been pondering those, uh, those two planes that came into the World Trade Center, then the Pentagon. That was the day... Um, that's one of those moments we, we never forget where we were when we heard the news or when we saw the TV. It, it's one of those uh, defining moments in the history of a nation. And I, I think back to, uh, I think back to how different things were there for about a week. I, I remember, if I'm not mistaken, it was the next day that Congress called for a prayer service in Congress. And you had folks that were divided over issues that weren't talking about those issues, but they were uh, seeking you. And there was uh, a great uh, sobriety and great fear and great uncertainty. And when that happens, we call on your name. And those who don't normally call on your name, they call on your name. And then that next <clears throat> Sunday, churches all over America were jammed packed, absolutely jam-packed. But by the following Sunday, attendance was pretty back, much back to normal. That, that is tragic because there are times when it is wise, it is wise to listen to you and to seek you. Not just in the moment of crisis, but to think longer than that, to think about the direction of our lives and where we're going and how we're spending our energy and our resources. I, I would pray for us on this 9-11, that you would give us a teachability that just lasts, that lasts beyond tonight or next Sunday but a teachability that will stay with us and keep us close to you and close to your word. Help us to see what's important in life and what isn't. Give us discernment. Give us wisdom. Help us to walk not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of our time because the days are evil. Each man has needs, each man has challenges, each man has uh, fears, conflicts, decisions to make. We seek you and we seek your wisdom and you promise that if any of us lack wisdom to ask of you and you give to us generously without holding back. Minister to each heart tonight, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.
So we are continuing in Second Peter. We started last week. We're going to be in Second Peter in this fall semester. We're calling this series Last Will and Testament because just to give a context, in Second Peter, Peter, as we said last week, is he's not long for this world. He's facing imminent death. In verses 14 and 15 of Second Peter 1, and actually I should pick it up in 13, Peter says, I consider it right as long as I am in this earthly dwelling, in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder. And that's what he's doing throughout this book. He's reminding them of essential things that he has taught them because he's about ready to check out of this earth. And he wants them to remember the things that really, really count and the things that really, really are important. Verse 14, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling, my body is imminent, as also the Lord Jesus Christ, our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. Now, how did the Lord make it clear to him? Well, we don't know, but it was clear. It it wasn't a diagnosis from the doctor. It wasn't, you know, something from the blood work. The Lord made it clear, your time is extremely limited. And we said last week that the context of really these two books, 1 Peter and 2 Peter, 1 Peter, in 1 Peter, they're in great persecution. They're still in great persecution in 2 Peter. Uh, this, uh, 1 Peter would have been written around AD 64, and that's when the great persecution that was orchestrated by Nero started. Nero was uh, crazy. He was, uh, had a lust for power and all kinds of lust. But he wanted uh, his name to be remembered. Rome was a great city even then. Uh, he decided to burn the city down and rebuild it, and he would get all the glory and all the credit for the generations to follow. But there was a backlash that he did not anticipate in order to defer the criticism, he started planting rumors that the ones who actually started the fires were Christians. And so there was a great persecution of Christians. Uh, Christians burned alive, thrown to the lions, just horrific, horrific stuff. Uh, Nero died in 68 AD. Peter died in that persecution. So he would have written 2 Peter right around AD 67, 68. Uh, When Nero died, the persecution began to back off. But Peter was crucified. He wouldn't, church history tells us tradition, he did not want to be crucified as the Lord. He, He wasn't worthy, so he had them crucify him upside down. Uh, Paul was beheaded during this time. So he, he knows his days on earth are few. And he is writing to remind them. Now the persecution is still going on. But as we go through this study, we will see that his primary thrust in, in writing this letter is to warn them about false teachers. And to warn them about false doctrine. Um, And as we said last week, the reason he's doing this, the persecution is still going on. 
But when you're in persecution, you have to know the truth about God. You have to know certain facts about your relationship with God. You have to know the promises of God. You have to have a perspective on why this is happening. If, if God is good, why would he allow this? I mean, these people were seeing horrific things happen. The only thing that will get you through something like that is sound teaching, is right doctrine. So sometimes you'll hear Christian people talk about doctrine. Oh, doctrine really is not all that important. It's critical. What you believe is absolutely critical, especially in times of great crisis. Because if you don't have the facts about God, and if you listen to false teachers who are giving you wrong information, you're not gonna make it. You're gonna be incredibly disappointed and you are not gonna have any foundation. So these believers were discouraged. It had been a hard stretch. They were worn out, they were exhausted. They need to be reminded of certain truths. Tonight in this section, um, he deals with their purpose and he deals with the promises of God. What... uh, Really, down deep in your heart, what are you living for? What's the purpose of your life? I actually printed this out. I saw that Boone Boone Pickens passed away today. Um, 91 years old. Extremely successful man, very colorful, colorful gentleman, great philanthropist, gave to a lot of great causes. Um, and the article I read said that in 2017 he, he took a pretty severe fall and things just kind of went downhill from there. Uh, the article I read it mentioned he loved to tell a story even after his fall that he was still optimistic. He said, yeah, it's sort of like the guy that was on the top of the 10-story building and gosh, he fell off and he passed the fifth floor, and he, and he thought, well, so far, so good. <laughs> That's a pretty good story. The problem is he's picking up speed. Let's turn to, uh, we'll be in Second Peter, but let's turn to Jeremiah, chapter 9, verse 23. Thus says the Lord, not, let not a wise man boast of his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not a rich man boast of his riches. But let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth, for I delight in these things declares the Lord. If you're going to boast, Jeremiah says, you want to boast that you know the Lord. And then over to 
John 17, verse 3, the words of Jesus. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. The purpose of life is to know God. That's what those two passages are saying. If we go into 2 Peter, he is saying exactly the same thing as he is coming to the end of his life and as he's writing to the believers who have been suffering and who are exhausted and worn out and fighting to not lose hope, he's gonna say the same thing to them. Now, we'll be in verses three and four, but we'll pick it up at verse one and just get one, two, three, and four. Simon Peter, again, Second Peter, verse chapter one. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ to those who have received a faith of the same kind of ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied to you, watch it, here it comes, in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. You see the centrality of knowing God and of knowing Christ? Same thing that Jesus said in John 17, 3, same thing that Jeremiah said back in Jeremiah 9. If you're going to boast, boast of this. Not how much money you've got. Not what your net worth is. Not if you're on the cover of Forbes. Not that you've got great political power or you've got this kind of power or this. Or that you've got academic credentials and all of that. Now, if you're going to boast, boast that you know God. That's the purpose of life. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us most things pertaining to life and godliness. Now, that's not what it says. Just thought I'd see if you were paying attention. Seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Through the true, here you go again, through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises so that by them you may become partakers, uh, participants, if you will, of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. That's as far as we'll get tonight. He just keeps talking about knowing God. He keeps talking about the knowledge of God. One commentator says the word knowledge appears in some form, actually 16 times in these three short chapters. It is not too much to say that Peter's primary solution to false teaching is knowledge of true doctrine. 
Christianity is not a mystical religion, but it is based on objective, historical, revealed, rational truth from God and intended to be understood and believed. The deeper and wider that knowledge of the Lord, the more grace and peace are multiplied. So just a two-point outline tonight. Number one, now I've already, I've already let the cat out of the bag here. Number one, the purpose of life is to know God and to become like him. The purpose of life is to know God and to become like him. Martin Lloyd-Jones observed. Uh, our, Our second point is simply this. The promises of God to sustain you in the darkest moments of life, like persecution, like depression, like facing imminent death, like 9-11. It's funny how life can just, not funny ha-ha, but funny ironic, how life your perspective on life can turn on a dime, just suddenly. I met a guy 30 years ago at a Christian businessmen's committee, ministry that, this will be surprising, ministers to Christian businessmen all over the country, good group of guys. I I met him at their national convention and you know, we, we talked a little bit at lunch, and uh, he told me he uh, officed in the World Trade Center somewhere in the 90s, not the year 90s, the 91 or 92nd or 98th or 99th floor, couldn't remember. But I had lunch with the guy, and he'd given his testimony. When I heard about 9-11, he was the first guy I thought about. I saw him at another event, maybe five years later. He was there. And I saw him and I said, you made it. He said, I was late getting to the office. Hmm. And then he told me the story in the background. But a lot of folks weren't late. A lot of folks were there, and their lives were changed forever. They had no idea that day when they got up and got their coffee, just a normal routine, what was going to come about. Do you remember Larry King? He's still around. If you ever watch a Dodger game, he's usually right behind home plate on the right side. But Larry King, back then, was still in his heyday on CNN. And that night, he had several pastors on, including John MacArthur. And he, as I recall, started off by saying to John MacArthur, pastor of Grace Community Church there in the San Fernando Valley, what is the main lesson of 9-11? And MacArthur looked at him and said, the main lesson is we're all going to die. 
And I listened to a podcast where MacArthur told that story. And he, he said, he didn't know what question was going to be asked, but that was the question, and that just immediately came to his mind. Hadn't thought about it before. But that is the lesson. And, and you see, that brings everything into real, crystal clear focus. What is the purpose of life? When, when you're on a ledge, hoping they'll get to you, you're thinking differently. At least differently than you were the day before or that morning when you got into the office. It's, it's good to think about these things because uh, we're all gonna die. We like, to, uh, we, we, we like to live our lives as though we're not, but we are. We're going to die. And, and we have X amount of days, and we have X amount of breaths, and then that's it. That's all in the hands of God. Hebrews 9 says it is appointed for a man once to die, and then comes judgment. So the purpose of life is to know God. If you look at verse 2, which we did last week, he says... Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Uh, grace and peace be multiplied to you. These people are in, they're, they're under incredible stress and pressure and persecution. What do they need? They need grace and they need peace. He wants it to be multiplied. Well, how is grace and peace multiplied? It is multiplied to us through the knowledge of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, flip over to Psalm 16. Psalms is, uh, is 150 Psalms. It starts off in Psalm 1. How blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. You don't listen to those who don't listen to God. You do not let them be your primary uh, influencers. Because all they have is the wisdom of man. What, what he's doing in Psalm 1, he's basically demonstrating there are two ways to live your life. One is by seeking the wisdom of men or by seeking the wisdom of God. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor sit, stand in the uh, path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law he shall meditate both day and night. And he shall be like a tree firmly planted by streams of living water. And whatever he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so. They are like chaff which the wind blows away. They will not stand in the day of judgment. We'll all die, and there will be a day of judgment. You don't have to believe it in order for it to be true. But Jesus is coming back and there will be a great white throne judgment and no one will escape except those who have called on his name and trusted in his blood and in his work on the cross 
for the forgiveness of their sins. That's the only way to escape that judgment. It's a fact. And see, that goes back to your purpose. What's your purpose in life? Uh, really, what, what do you want out of your life? And, and even as Christians, and even as believers, we, 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 we've got to filter this correctly. Promise keepers are starting back up. What's interesting is, because they're starting back up, they're getting besieged by guys in ministry who have ministries. They're getting besieged with phone calls. Hey, I'd really like to speak at Promise Keepers. That is sad. Jeremiah 45, 5. Seekest thou great things for thyself? Seek them not. You don't need to promote yourself. You don't need to promote yourself. Let God promote you. John the Baptist said, he must increase, I must decrease. You see? If, if, but, but, so why does that happen? Because guys in ministry, they go, oh, man, wouldn't that be great? I, you know, I, I could have this big platform and reach more people and all that. That's not the goal of, of life. The Lord takes care of us. He provides. Yeah, we want our work to be fruitful and all of that. But there's such a thing in Scripture, uh, it's very real, called selfish ambition. And Paul says in Philippians, he said, some preach Christ out of selfish ambition. Selfish ambition is the need to lead. It's the need to be in the spotlight. It's the need to be in control. It's the need to be in charge. Um... It's also mentioned in James. You say, why are you bringing this up? Because our purpose is to know God and not promote our own agenda. And this can happen to guys who know the Lord and love the Lord. In, um, in, in James, this is quite a powerful passage. He says in chapter 3, verse 3, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. <clears throat> this wisdom is not that which comes down from above. Watch this. It's earthly, it's natural, it's demonic. Selfish ambition is what was in Satan's heart. The need to be in charge, the need to be in control. He wanted to be equal with God. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. And that can happen in churches, it can happen in ministries, it can happen in families. It's all about me. It's not about you, it's not about me. So in Rick Warren's book, The Purpose Driven Life, if I'm not mistaken, the very first sentence says, it's not about you. It's about God. It's about knowing God and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. So back to Second Peter. Then, verse 3. 
seeing that his divine power has granted to us, watch this, everything pertaining to life and godliness. I'm going to stop right here for a minute. In Christian circles, you will be told that you, after you come to the Lord, there's certain things in addition that you need. You might need, you were told, a certain experience with, or you need to speak in tongues, uh, or you need to experience this, or you need to experience this. And the phrase, because I was raised in a church with that theology, the phrase that you hear is, do you want everything that God has for you? Well, yeah. Who doesn't? I want everything God has for me. What does this verse say? Seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. He's already given me everything I need pertaining to life and godliness. I don't need to go, I don't need to go seek some experience. I've seen classes where they'll teach you to speak in tongues. They didn't do that in the book of Acts. The Spirit of God just showed up and boom, and they heard them speaking in their own dialect in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost. There's a particular accent out of southern Alabama around Birmingham that's different from northern Alabama. I, took a, I was a speech major in college, and I took a class on different speech dialects, and they were like, they're 28, you know, I grew up in California, there's a southern accent. No, there's about 28 different southern accents. I didn't know that. They heard them speaking in their own dialectos. That was, that, was, that was miraculous. That was God. And they weren't teaching them classes on how to do this. Just say this and say this and do this. And... No. That's, that's man-made stuff. Hey, when all else fails, read the directions. Just read the directions. So what I'm telling you is if someone tells you you need to speak in tongues, that's false teaching. Because he says in 1 Corinthians, all do not speak in tongues, do they? And if you've got 20 Christians, Christians, and no believers, and just 20 Christians gathering, and they're speaking in tongues, they're violating the word of God. Because 1 Corinthians 14, 22, you say, how do you know this? Because I had to work it through for years because what I had been taught. I've been taught certain things. Then I started really looking at it. 1 Corinthians 14, 22. So then tongues are for a sign, not to believers, but to unbelievers. So why would you have 20 Christians all speaking in tongues and there's not a believer within 10 miles? When, when you get right down to it, what do you do? You search the scriptures, like the Bereans. They search the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Okay. Here it tells me, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything, everything, everything pertaining to life and godliness and through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. This is the same. What he's saying is, he's saying the same thing as 2 Timothy 3.16. God's already granted to me everything I need pertaining to life and godliness. 
if you back up to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, what he's talking about is he's giving me the word of God and he's giving me the spirit of God to open up the scriptures to me. He's given apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers to the church. That's Ephesians 4. To teach us in the scriptures. If you look at 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is inspired by God. God breathed and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness. Watch this. That the man of God may be adequate, completely furnished, equipped for every good work. It's already been given. It's the scriptures. How do you grow in the knowledge of God? By being in the word of God. That's it. So he says, grace and peace be multiplied to you. Um, Peace is a great thing. Peace is the result of grace. You know what the gospel is? The gospel is good news. The fact uh, that we're, any of us are Christians and are saved is because of the grace of God. Ephesians 2.8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not as a result of works, that any man should boast. Ephesians 2.8-9. The first work of grace in your life is not to give you the good news, it's to give you the bad news. Francis Schaeffer was once asked if he had an hour to talk to someone about the gospel, how would he go about it? He said, I think we're too quick to share the good news. I would spend 40, 45 minutes giving them the bad news. That they are utterly hopeless without Christ. That's what Ephesians 2 does. I quoted Ephesians 2.8, for by grace you've been saved through faith. But if you look at Ephesians 2.1, it says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You're spiritually dead. You know what that means? That means you don't seek God. Uh, Psalm 14 says, there is no one who seeks God. There is no one who seeks him. The Lord has looked over the sons of men. There is no one who seeks him. Why, why does no one seek God? Because we're dead spiritually. So what has to happen is the Lord has to work in our hearts. And it goes on in Ephesians 2 and says, we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but he made us alive. In essence, for me or you to come to Christ or anyone, what has to happen is what happened to Lazarus. Lazarus was dead as a doornail. Jesus stayed away on purpose for two days so that when Jesus showed up, he said to them, remove the stone. Oh, no, you can't do that. By now, his body will be putrefied. Exactly. That's why he stayed away for two days. There was no discussion of whether or not this guy was dead. This guy was dead, dead. So then Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth. Couple observations.
Jesus called him by name. That was a burial, a place for the dead, a place where people are buried. Jesus said, Lazarus, if he just had said, come forth, (laughs) there would have been a mass exodus. He said, Lazarus, come forth. I got a question for you. Lazarus is dead. How did he hear Jesus? Dead men can't hear. The reason he heard Jesus is that Jesus made him alive so that he could hear. We're deaf, we're blind, we don't seek God. We love him because he first loved us. That's how it works. So you see, the grace of God reaches down and pulls us to him when we have no interest in him. And then he opens our eyes. Satan has blinded, is it 2 Corinthians 4? Satan has blinded the minds of the unbelieving that they may not see the truth of the gospel. So the spirit of God works, makes us alive, regenerates us, and then we hear and then we respond. You say, yeah, I responded in faith. God gave you the faith. God gave you everything. For by grace, you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. What does that not of yourselves refer to? Well, it's for by grace. Is grace of yourself? No. For by grace, you have been saved. Do you save yourselves? No. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. Oh, do you supply faith? You're dead. For by grace, you have been saved by faith. And that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Salvation, the whole kit and caboodle, is a gift of God to dead people. That they're born again. So you see, the gospel starts with grace. Oh, and because because I've been born again, Romans 5 says, Therefore, since we have been justified, we have peace with God. Now I have peace with God. Why? Because God initiated and pulled me in. Peace is the result of grace. Greater grace brings about greater peace. So the more I know about the knowledge of God and the truth of God, which is contained in the scriptures, what I'm saying to you, this is why we have Bible study. The more I know about God, the more peace I'm going to have in my life. That's the key to having a quiet heart, a calm heart, when everything's blowing up around you. Let's go to the second point. The promises of God sustain you in the darkest moments of life. He goes on and says in 2 Peter, Picking it up again in three. Seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Which we're going to, we're going to grow. It, it, it's a process. We, we don't get it all at once. We're growing in grace. But that's why we keep studying the word of God. Okay. Through the true knowledge of him <clears throat> who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises. So that by them, 
you may become partakers or participants of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Uh, these people were being persecuted. They, they had loved ones who had been torn apart by lions or uh, burned alive for Christ. That's, that's brutal. What sustains you in the darkest moments? What sustains you in persecution? What sustains you uh, in, 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 in Great Depression? It's the promises of God. The promises of God. Uh, very well-known uh, pastor on the West Coast, associate pastor, youth pastor with Greg Laurie. Um, pastor Jared Wilson took his life hours after officiating funeral of a Christian woman who took her own life. It just happened yesterday. And this young guy has had a great ministry, ministering to those in depression, anxiety, suicidal folks. Just, just breaks your heart. As Greg Laurie said, there are just no words for this. I mean, this guy knew the Lord. This guy had a ministry. A wife, two little kids. I, I know of six, seven, eight guys in the last six, seven, eight years, Christian men committed to their church, committed to the Lord, their families, who took their own lives. Everybody's shocked. Um, the first thing that has to be said is this, and I looked at the comments on that you know people could put on this, and I don't usually do that, and I did for today. Suicide is a sin. Suicide is murder. Suicide is self-murder. But Jesus paid it all. Jesus didn't pay it 90%. Jesus didn't pay it 95%. Jesus paid it all. Satan is a thief and a robber and a murderer. You can be sure that anyone who takes their life, there is satanic oppression because he's a murderer. I don't know this young guy's heart. I don't know him at all. Some of these other men I mentioned, I knew of them, I didn't know them. The question always is, how could this happen? Sometimes, um, sometimes there are chemical imbalances that cause people to act in ways they would not normally act. I, I've told you before, I went through a, a depression in my early 30s, and it really woke me up to some things. And I had a period, a season, where I was crying three to four hours a day and I couldn't stop. And I was afraid I was going to wind up in a mental institution. I didn't understand what was going on. And I was pretty broken and pretty beat up. I was embarrassed. I was ashamed. I figured God would never use me again because of, I was just a wreck. 
Um, took me two and a half, three years to pull out of that and residual effects for some years after that. You know what pulled me through? The promises of God. It wasn't the only thing. Because you can't be isolated. You can't live the Christian life by yourself. Satan loves to isolate a man, get him off by himself. We we are part of a body. I've said it before, there are two things you can't do by yourself. You can't get married by yourself. I mean, at least not yet. I'm sure that's coming. And secondly, you can't live the Christian life by yourself. Jesus sent them out two by two. He didn't send them out one by one. He who walks with wise men will be wise. You've got to have some people in your life that you talk to. You, you just can't handle this stuff by yourself because you'll get overwhelmed. You cannot, let me, let me tell you something. You cannot take Satan on by yourself. You just can't do it. So you, you, you've got to be in some kind of, you've got to have some relationships. Someone you can talk to, you can pray with, look into the scriptures with, someone you can call. I had that. I, I was so ashamed of that that I, I, and I really thought I was disqualified from ever having a ministry. What I didn't know, I didn't know at the time that God had me in men's ministry once I hit 40, and I'm 70 now, will be, for 30 years. I, I, I had no idea that's what God had in mind for me. I just figured I was completely disqualified because I was so messed up. But you see, his power is perfected in weakness. And what I didn't know is that I would learn some scriptures, and then he'd send me out, and just about every time I do a conference somewhere, I run into a guy and he's in the shape I was in. And he's absolutely clueless and he's frightened and he's never been like that and he thinks he's always gonna be like that. And, and then, that's why I talk about it at conferences. I, I, I talked about it at Stonebriar a couple weeks ago. Well, you, you mean you had that happen to you? Yeah, How, how'd you get through it? Well, as I just said, I had some Friends that walk through it with me, but primarily the promises of God. This is where I learned the scriptures. So, so see, promises of God. You live off the promises, but you got to know what the promises are. You see? So the pressure that a believer is under, sometimes they, they, they failed, they're ashamed, whatever. They can, it, life is just not worth living. They have, Satan is lying to them. Let, let me give you some promises um, that'll help you. And, and, and these are promises you want to you, you memorize. And, and, they're, and they're core promises, they're go-to. You can pull them out when you need to. This is how you fight off despair. This is how you fight off depression. Oh, I've sinned so greatly that the Lord can never forgive me. I've sinned and I've fallen again and all of that. You need Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Are you in Christ? Yeah. You need 1 John 1.9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
Have you missed up? Have you gotten away from the Lord and missed up your life and gotten involved with someone other than your spouse and all this, like David did? In Psalm 32, David wrote Psalm 32. The first seven verses are his repentance, the vomiting of his soul, coming clean before the Lord. And then the Lord says to him, I will instruct you and teach you in the way that you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. But don't be as the horse or mule whose trappings include bit and bridle to keep them in check. In other words, obey me. You're forgiven. I see your heart. It's from your heart. I forgive you. And I will instruct you and teach you in the way that you should go. But I want you to listen. Don't fight me. So you think there's no hope? There's no way out of this? He will instruct you and teach you in the way that you should go. Well, I made such a miss. How do I unscramble an egg? You don't. God does. And he's not going to give you a five-year plan on what he's going to do right now. He's not going to lay out the next five years how he's going to do it. It's going to be a day at a time. I, I am grateful for the oppression I went through because I remember the day when I wished that I could die. And for the first time in my life, I understood why someone would take their life. It was that bad. And I wasn't going to do it because... I just, I wasn't going to do it, but I could understand why someone would do it because of the pressure, the disappointment, the grief, the absolute crushing, the pulverization, the devastating (sighs) destruction of dreams and hopes, and you missed up your life. Why are you in despair, O my soul? Psalm 42. And why are you cast down within me? Why are you in despair, O my soul, and why are you cast down within me? Well, I made a wrong decision, and this decision I missed up, and I mean, I just totally missed up my life. Okay, that's why I'm in despair. Next line. Hope in God, for I shall again praise him for the help of his saving acts. Did you get the significance of that? Hope in God. I shall. It doesn't say I might. It says I shall again praise him for the help of his saving acts. Because he's still your savior. Yeah, he saved you when you called on his name for forgiveness of sin. That's just the first time. Actually, it probably isn't the first time. Because he saved you a bunch of times just in terms of preserving your life. Psalm 68 says, um, to the Lord belongs escapes from death. So maybe you were in an accident and you should have died and your buddies died and you walked away. To the Lord belongs escapes from death. And you didn't even know the Lord yet. Ah, but he had a plan. Here's another problem. Psalm 46.1. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Great verse. The New American Standard Bible, in the margin, there's an alternative translation that's rough, real rough. Run your hand across it, you'll get splinters. It's not polished. But it gets the guts of it. Here's what it says. God is our refuge and strength. He is abundantly available for help in tight places. I love that verse. I have lived off that verse. I talked with a guy today, 
briefly, who lived in Dallas for years and years and years, professional career, did really, really well. Now he and his wife have a ministry in Haiti. So in Haiti, a gallon of gas is 20 bucks. Box of raisin bran, 32 bucks. Um, his primary work, they have an orphanage. He puts in clean water systems because half the people are, have chronic, chronic vomiting and disease because of the condition of the water. And he preaches the gospel. And they live in anarchy and they live in chaos. They live in lawlessness like we can't imagine. And he, but he's called and he said, you know, the Lord's faithful. He said, remember last summer we got down to $150. And then, each day for the next three days, through the internet, money was put into our account. It's just the way it is. He is abundantly available for help in tight places. And he said, you know, Steve, I live off those verses. I live off the verses. You see, his divine power is granted to us everything we need pertaining to life and godliness. But the word, what happens is the, the, the Holy Spirit takes the word of God and he makes us partakers of it. He makes us partners. And when I take the word of God and I start putting it into my mind and heart, it begins to change me and to make me more like God. I'll never be like God, you understand that. But I become more like God. Romans 12, 1 and 2. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your, what? Mind. Psalm 119. How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to thy word. Thy word I have hid in my heart that I may not sin against thee. There's power in the word of God. And when that word comes into my life, I'm partaking of the divine nature and the divine promises and the divine truth, which is designed to change me and give me grace and peace in the midst of darkness, depression, even devastation. Because you see, as G.I. Packer says, what really matters more than anything else is not that I know God, but that God knows me. And he's inscribed me in the palm of his hand. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me and they shall never perish. My father is greater than all and no one can snatch them out of his hand. That gives me peace. Because it's sheer grace. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for the power of your word, for the power of your truth. For every man in his particular circumstances. 
drive that truth home in his heart and in his mind so that he can sleep well tonight knowing that you've got him and his family. His times are in your hands. The Lord will accomplish that which concerns me. We're so grateful. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.